Welcome everyone, so good to have all of you at all of our churches, and if you're just joining us today for the first time at any of our locations, hey, I just wanna say thanks for being with us. We are in week three of our series entitled The Bible for Grownups, and as I told you each week, the goal of this series is really that you'll learn to love and appreciate the Bible like you never have before, that you'll make it part of your life, that you'll begin to understand and appreciate it for what it really is, and it's God's, basically his love letter to everyone one of us and that you'll want to lean in more and more as we go through this journey. So this series also, you need to understand, is built from episode to episode. So if you missed either the first two parts of this series, I hope you go back and you watch on our app or our website so that you have the full context of where we are going today. Because in each conversation, we don't necessarily answer all the questions, but really we're doing like one sermon over four weeks. So you got to make sure you get all parts so you get the full context of everything. Now, here's why we really feel like that this series is really important in this season. And that is this, whether you grew up in church or you didn't grow up in church, whether you consider yourself a church person or not a church person, while some of us, we know some of the stories from the Bible, most of us, we don't know the backstory of how we got the Bible as we have it today. Literally, no one has ever sat down and explained how we got the Bible that we have today. And the story or the backstory of how we got the Bible is very crucial. And here's why it's crucial. If you don't understand how we got the Bible, you'll misunderstand what's in the Bible. You won't understand the context, so you'll have a lot of misinterpretation, a lot of misapplication. So if you don't understand how we got the Bible, you're going to misunderstand what's in the Bible. See, the truth is this. If you don't know the story of the Bible, it's easy to dismiss the stories in the Bible. In fact, as we began to learn last week, and we're going to see at a greater level today, the story of the Bible is almost as important as what is in the Bible. Because see, if you don't know the story behind how we got the Bible, when somebody comes along and they push back or they point out something that you don't know how to explain or defend that's in the Bible, it becomes very easy to start to discount or start dismissing the stories in the Bible and quickly come, as many people have, to the conclusion, well, that couldn't have possibly happened or the Bible can't possibly be true. So, what we've done is we said, uh, we've got to have a conversation about this. So we began uh, by understanding and helping you understand that the way that we got our Bible, the way that it was handed to us, chaptered and verse and wrapped and with the Bibles and the index and all that, is not the way that we got the original Bible as we have it today. And as we learned in week one, contrary to how it might seem based on the way it's laid out, the story of the Bible, it doesn't begin in the first chapter in Genesis. It doesn't. The story of the Bible, it begins with Jesus. And here's why we say that. The story of the Bible, it begins in the first century with an empty tomb. Don't miss that. The story of the Bible, it begins in the first century with an empty tomb. If it were not for the resurrection of Jesus, no one would have written about Jesus' life. We probably would have never heard about Jesus. In fact, the Apostle Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Don't miss that. I mean, what is our preaching based on? It's based upon Jesus and what we have in God's word. So if Christ had not been raised, raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. But here's the thing that happened. When Jesus walked out of that tomb, the people who had abandoned him and stopped believing on him when he hung on that Roman cross, suddenly they believed again. 
And they went around Jerusalem and they went around Judea and they started telling everybody not what Jesus had taught, but they went around telling everybody what they had witnessed, what they had seen, what they had heard with their own eyes and with their own ears. See, they watched him die and they saw him alive. So the Bible was inspired and it was driven by one event. And that is the resurrection of Jesus. In other words, something extraordinary had happened. As a result, suddenly there was this interest in something that there had not been interest in before. Many people, they started documenting Jesus' life and what they, of what they had seen and, and what they heard. And we still have those four documents that document the life of Jesus. We have those in the Bible called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In other words, two Greeks, two Jews wrote these documents for us. And then there was a guy by the name of the Apostle Paul who we're gonna look at a lot more next week. And once the Apostle Paul became a follower of Jesus Christ, he left Israel along with a few other people and he began traveling around the Mediterranean Rim. He started telling the Gentiles from town to town about what Jesus had done, that something extraordinary had happened. And so that's where the story picks up from last week because last week we learned this. When the Gentiles became interested in a particular Jew, Jesus of Nazareth, they became interested in the sacred texts of the Jews. Now, these sacred texts of the Jews, they were known as the Jewish scriptures or what we now call the law and the prophets. And so by the end of the first century and into the second century, these non-Jewish Jesus followers, they started reading what we now call our Old Testament. They began reading this part of the Bible, the law and the prophets. But here's where it starts getting really complicated. While the Gentiles were interested in the Jewish scripture, they did not treat the Jewish scripture as Jewish scripture. No, they treated the Jewish scripture as Christian scripture because they weren't the least bit interested in the Jewish religion of Judaism. They were only interested in the story of the Jewish scripture that led up to Jesus and how the Jewish scriptures predicted that he would come and how the Jewish scripture pointed to him. And so when they read the Jewish scriptures, what we now call our Old Testament, they found references to Jesus everywhere. And this began to create conflict between the Jews who felt like that these early Christ followers had hijacked their scripture. So basically, the Gentiles came along and said, hey, you guys, you had all these predictions about your Messiah, and then Jesus shows up, and you missed it. I mean, you couldn't even get that right. So we're not going to listen to anything you say about your scripture. And in doing so, they rejected or they ignored how the Jews interpreted and explained their own text. And so the Apostle Paul, I mean, it got bad enough that the Apostle Paul, he addressed this in a letter to Christ followers in Rome. He, he literally had to tell them, he said, listen, hey, you Gentiles, you shouldn't be hostile toward the Jews and act like somehow you're superior or smarter to them. You wouldn't have Jesus if it weren't for the Jews. But here's what happens. After the Apostle Paul and after Peter and after John and all those guys died, this conflict between these two groups of people, it began to grow again. And what got lost in that conflict was the history and the purpose of the Jewish people that we find in the Jewish scripture. 
And the context, which I think is the best way, or the context which is the best way to understand what we now call the New Testament. So today what we're gonna do is we're gonna take a walk through what I think is one of the most epic and gritty and extraordinary history um, that you can read, and it's the history of God's relationship with the Jewish people, and it's told through the Jewish scripture, which is what we now call the Old Testament. And it starts with what we talked about last week. Last week, we gave you this idea, we gave you this thought to begin to process and, and kind of lean into. We, we saw that Moses, in his account in Genesis, which is the very first book in the Bible, um, he introduced us to this idea that God is creator. He introduced us to God as creator God. So Moses, he introduced the idea, the truth, that there was one true God that created the world. And as we said last week, his goal in writing the account of Genesis was not to explain in scientific detail how the world was created, but that one true God created the world. Now, here's the thing. You may be at one of our churches today and you go, I don't know if I believe this whole creation account and I can't believe you guys believe it. And you know, here's why we believe it, or at least I should say, here's why I believe it. It's because of what Jesus said. Jesus said, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So at the very beginning Moses introduced us at the beginning of Genesis to God as creator. And here's the thing, Jesus affirmed Moses' writings. And I believe Moses' writings because I believe Jesus lived, died, and rose again, right? And so Jesus affirmed that. But very quickly what happened is, is Moses shifts the story from God as creator to say also God was not only creator, but he had shifts the story to God as founder, Specifically, God decides, don't miss this, God decides to found a nation through which he'll do his redemptive work in the world. And he begins with an older guy by the name of Abraham. Now, Abraham, and the reason I say he's an older guy is because really, if you read scripture, you find out he's past childbearing years. And so he has no children. And so God comes to him and says, I'm going to make a great nation through you, which all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so this nation had a very specific, global, multi-generation historical purpose. So God comes to Abraham and he tells him, I'm gonna make a great nation through you. Abraham's got no children, but then God does some miracles. You should read the story sometime. It's pretty amazing. And so let's fast forward several hundred years and Abraham, his family has now grown to become a large group of people who are enslaved by Egypt or in Egypt by a Pharaoh who considers himself a God on earth. And so what God does is he sends a guy in by the name of Moses. He sends him back to Egypt to deliver a very simple message on behalf of the one true God. And he tells Pharaoh, he says, I want you to let my people go. But if you've read the story, you've ever heard the story, you know that Pharaoh refuses. So God sent Pharaoh the only language, or God spoke to Pharaoh basically in the only language that Pharaoh respected, and that was power and violence through plagues. And at the end of 10 plagues, Pharaoh, he frees 
the Jewish people and this group of Jewish people who had been enslaved, don't miss this, they've been enslaved for like 400 years. They actually leave Egypt wealthy because the Egyptians are so glad for the plagues to be over that they give them their wealth to leave. But here's the thing about this generation. They have never experienced freedom. So they don't know how to handle it. They don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to function as a nation because they have been enslaved for 400 years. So Moses then leads this group of people to Mount Sinai where God established with them what is known as the Sinai Covenant or some of you may have heard it called the Mosaic Covenant. And so in the Sinai Covenant or the Mosaic Covenant, basically God says to this Jewish nation, these Hebrew people, he says, I'm gonna be your God and you're gonna be my people because I have a special, unique, unparalleled purpose for you in this world. He basically says, I'm going to reveal myself to the world through you. I'm gonna bless the entire world through you. But then God says, but here are the rules. I'm gonna give you a land in which you'll form your nation. And then he says, and here's the thing, you can't adopt the moral guidelines and the religious practices of the people of the other nations around you. In fact, he says, your job is to show them who I am. You're to model for them and what it looks like for them to live the way that I created human beings to live. That's very significant and we need to remember that. So here's what God says to them, because you're to be the model of how to live the way I created human beings to live. He says, if you stay faithful to me and you fulfill your purpose, he says, I'm gonna bless you. But he says, if you stray and you disobey, I'm gonna punish you because the whole world is watching you. So he says, if you start living like all these other cultures around you, he says, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna give you over to these other countries and they're gonna rule over you again until you get your fill of their way of life and you realize that my way is better than their way and then I'm gonna bring you back to your land and we're gonna give you your freedom again. And here's the thing I don't want you to miss right here. Their experience with God was conditional in the sense that how they obeyed determined what they experienced. Don't miss that. Their experience with God was conditional based on the fact of how they obeyed determined what they experienced with God. But the thing you have to understand, their relationship with God was unconditional in the sense that they would always be God's chosen people with which he would accomplish his purpose and his agenda for the world. So they had a very unique relationship with God. Now, God explains all this in the Sinai covenant or the Mosaic covenant when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai. Now, you gotta understand, this is where most of us don't get it. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, he did not just come down with 10 commandments. He came down with 613 commands or laws. So why did God give Moses all these laws? Why did he give 613, some people say 614 laws. Well, it was to show these people who had been enslaved for 400 years how to function as a nation selected by God for a very specific purpose. Now, I wanna talk about these commands for just a minute, these laws for just a minute, because it's very common to hear people um, who are kind of skeptical about scripture, about God, criticize these laws really harshly. 
For instance, a guy by the name of Richard Dawkins in his book called The God Delusion, this is his take on God and Judaism. Notice what he says. He said, Judaism, originally a tribal cult of a single fiercely unpleasant God, morbidly obsessed with sexual restrictions, with the smell of charred flesh, with his own superior over rival gods, and with the exclusiveness of his chosen desert tribe. Now, here's the thing. If that's all you had ever heard or all you've ever read about God, you're going to walk away thinking, who would want to follow a God like that? And see, that's why we want to talk about some of these laws, because there's a lot of smart people in different areas who get it so wrong when it comes to understanding the Jewish scripture that we now call the Old Testament. For example... The Sinai Covenant, or the Mosaic Covenant, it is detailed in Leviticus. So if you want to read some very interesting reading at some point in time, make sure you're wide awake and read through Leviticus. But here's the thing. I'm going to get you interested in Leviticus today, okay? In Leviticus chapter 18, God gives the Jewish people 19 different sexual prohibitions. All the teenagers and students are ready to go read it right, right now, right? 19 laws that deal with what you shouldn't do sexually. Why would he give them 19 laws on sex? And here's why. Because all 19 of them were behaviors that were practiced in Egypt, where they had just come from, and by the Canaanite people where they were going. So these 19 practices were normal for the culture of that time. But here's what God knew. They were not relationally, they were not emotionally, they were not spiritually healthy for any people to be practicing. Now here's what I know. It's real easy for people to say, yeah, you know, they'll read something or they'll hear something. They'll just hear a little blurb or a clip of something and they go, that's what I don't like about Christianity. That's why I don't believe in God and all that kind of stuff. It's so restrictive, especially like sexually and God shouldn't be bossing me around about what I do in private or what I can't do in my own bedroom, that kind of thing. That's why we wanna talk about this one because plus, whenever a pastor talks about sex, all the people who tuned out just tune right back in. So now that I've got all of your attention, let me just give you one example of the 19 prohibitions, right? Here it is. Here's the first one. We find it in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 6. No one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relationships. Anybody want to argue with that one? That doesn't sound too restrictive, does it? No, I mean, I think we all agree on that, don't we? I mean, that sounds pretty reasonable, See, it doesn't matter whether you're a Christ follower or not a Christ follower, whether you're a church person or not a church person, nobody thinks it's a good idea to have sex with your parents or your siblings. Now, now here's the thing. Now that I got you curious, you're going to go read the rest. I'm glad. See, now you're getting interested in the Bible. But here's the thing. Here's what you need to know. Most of the 19 behaviors prohibited in Leviticus 18 are illegal or frowned upon today in most countries in the world, especially in the developed countries in the world. The point is this, the Sinai covenant, the Mosaic covenant, I always kind of get emotional sometimes when I talk or read about this stuff because here's why. It's just pretty cool to see that what God gave the nation of Israel, the Hebrew people, when they formed their nation, it was way, way, way ahead of its time. 
It's just incredible when you think about how God just says, I just want to show you how to live. I want to show you how to love. I want to show you how to get along. It was way ahead of its time for, for countries of that time. I mean, they, they were sleeping with their moms and their dads and their sisters and their brothers and their aunts and their uncles. And God says to these Hebrews, this Jewish nation, I'm trying to introduce something different to the world. I'm trying to introduce something better to the world. So you're not going to view sex the way that they view sex. There's a much better way. And nobody argues with that today. Amen. But you know what? It was so far ahead of its time that 1,500 years after this covenant, when Jesus was on this earth, the Egyptian monarchs were still marrying their siblings. And it would take several more generations for the Egyptians to decide that incest was a bad idea. The point is, it is really easy to say, oh, that Bible is so antiquated and that Bible is so old-fashioned and that Bible is so narrow-minded if you don't understand the context of the Bible. If you don't understand the story of the Bible, if you don't understand that these 614 laws or 613 laws, whichever way one you want to go with, after it gets over 500, it doesn't matter anymore, right? But anyhow, bottom line is, you know, when you understand that God was giving this to a group of people to say, I want you to know how to live as a nation and I want you to be different because you're going to do something absolutely amazing for me. I'm going to do something through you in this world. So you can't just dismiss the Bible that easily. Matter of fact, the Sinai Covenant is a moral and civil code that when understand, understood in its ancient context is absolutely brilliant. And here's what any good scholar knows is that you can't pull something out of its ancient context and compare it somehow to the modern world and judge it. You have to evaluate it within its context. And when you do this, man, you understand that the Sinai Covenant, it was way ahead of its time. In fact, the protections of this covenant afforded to the vulnerable were revolutionary in ancient times. Women, servants, foreigners, and children were all given more protection and value than in any other culture of that time. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Because see, the Hebrews, as we learned last week, they believe that every person is made in the image of God and has inherent value and dignity and worth. So here's the thing. You may read parts of the Sinai Covenant and you may compare it to like modern standards. And if, if you just read little portions and little parts, it, it may seem narrow-minded, it may seem barbaric. But I'm telling you, if you read it in its context and you understand it in its day, it was absolutely brilliant. And it still is brilliant when you understand that. So it's an amazing example of God accommodating the maturity level of the people and helping them rise to a new level of maturity and then beginning them to teach them a new way to live. Pretty amazing, isn't it? So now back to our storyline. So after the Sinai covenant, these people, they became a nation state, the Jewish people did. And God's intent is to kind of lead and guide them himself, be their own leader. But after a while, they decide, uh, we don't know if we want God being our leader. We really don't want God being our leader because they started looking around at the other nations and they said, we want to be like the other nations. And they decided, okay, we want to have kings. We would rather have kings rule over us than God. We want to be like all the other nations around us. So every other nation has one, so God let them have kings, and it was largely disastrous. I mean, it only took like three kings for them to divide as a nation. So you wonder why we have problems sometimes, politically, division, right? All it took was a nation of Israel, three kings, and they divided the country, right? So here's the thing. 
It was largely disastrous. So these kings, they raise their taxes and everybody hates paying more taxes except the people who don't pay taxes, right? Then the kings, what else they did is they formed armies and nobody likes to lose their loved ones in war. So then the other thing these kings did is they gathered multiple wives. And let me just go ahead and say, anytime you have multiple wives, life is gonna get complicated. Just saying. Matter of fact, here's a good rule of life for you. If you have a favorite wife, things will not go well in life, right? You, you can pretty much count on that, right? So they had these kings who had their harem. And by again, by the third king, it's like they, they were setting these harem records, 700 wives and 300 concubines. It just gets ridiculous, right? But instead of looking to God for guidance, the king kept looking, or the people kept looking around, the kings kept looking around to see what other kings and other nations were doing. And so that's what they did. And they started imitating those people and those other nations. And oftentimes these kings, they misbehaved against God horribly. And they would lead the nation of Israel away from following God. So from time to time, God would come along and he would send these prophets. This is why you have prophets in the Old Testament part of the Bible. You have their communication. And why did he send prophets? Was to warn and correct the kings. So a lot of the Old Testament writings, a lot of Old Testament warnings were these prophets trying to remind Israel that they were a chosen people with a specific purpose and they could not live like everybody else lived. So all of these writings and these warnings, they had very specific historical context. But now and, then, and again, here's what would happen. And this is what ties us back to the Gentiles being interested in the Old Testament or the sacred scripture of the Jewish people. Every now and again, these prophets, they would write about something that was going to happen in the future. And they would refer to this Messiah who would deliver and would save. And the people of their time, they often wouldn't understand, what does that mean? What does that mean? But it was another reminder to them, to the Hebrew people, that they were a divine means to a divine end. So the story of the Old Testament, when you begin to understand the context of it, of these ancient people, you begin to understand, and this is an incredible, gritty, fascinating, magnificent story of God who chose a people to do something extraordinary in this world that was going to bless all the people for all generations in the world. In fact, we could summarize it this way. God walks into the mess and plays by the rules of the kingdoms of this world in order to usher in a kingdom not of this world. And so if you go and you try to sand off any of the rough edges of the Hebrew story, or if you try to dismiss any parts that you don't like, it is to ignore the context of the ancient world and it misses the extravagant grace that God showed by choosing to step into the mess that humanity had created. And he chose to do what nobody else could do. It's to clean up what we had messed up, but to do it in a way that honored the freedom of the people to choose their own path and not to override the freedom with his presence. That's how he did it. So there's stories I said. I mean, it is gritty, it is raw, it is incredibly powerful. And if you ever read it, you understand that. It's just amazing. It is the history, though, of God moving and God proving his love, not just for the Jews, but God is moving and God is proving his love for all humanity, for all mankind. It's a history with a divine purpose that was first revealed, as I told you, in Abraham. And then 2,000 years later, it came to fruition through a young, pregnant Jewish girl having a baby in Bethlehem. In fact, the Apostle Paul, 
who began as a Pharisee, not a Jesus follower, he knew more about this Jewish scripture, probably better than anyone else. He described it this way in a letter to Christ followers living in a Roman providence called Galatia. We find this in Galatians chapter four, beginning in verse four. Here's what he said. But when the set time had fully come, you know, every time I read this, it's just so powerful to me. When everything and everybody was in place just as it needed to be. When the set time had fully come, when Abraham's family became that nation that God had promised and everybody else looked at Abraham when he received that promise and goes, there's no way you're gonna become a nation. You, you, your wife can't even bear children and, and, and you're old. Like, that, that's, how's that gonna happen? And it happened. And then that nation, it became a kingdom and all the gears of history were just where they needed to be. So at just the right time, what did God do? Here's what he did. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And this law, what was it for? This law, it was designed to teach the Jewish people to live a different way than the other nations around them. But it was also, there was another reason for this law. It was designed to show all of mankind, the Jews and Gentiles alike, that we could not live up to the standards of these laws on our own. It was impossible. Notice what happens next. So why did God send his son, born of a woman, born under the law? To redeem those under that law. Because we could not redeem ourselves. That we might receive adoption to sonship. So that you, all of you on our Bluntstown campus, all of you on our Chipley campus, all of you on our Mariana campus here, all of you might have a relationship with God as your heavenly father and no longer as a founder lawgiver. That's pretty powerful when you think about it. And when you really understand that context and you understand that story, it just, man, it just does something in your heart to go, wow, God, thank you. See, here's the thing. That's the history of the Jewish scriptures. That's the history of our Old Testament. And, it, and you got to understand something about the, the Old Testament because a lot of Christians, they, they totally they totally mess up their relationship with God and they get angry with God because they look at some of the promises in the Old Testament and, and they pick and they choose which promises they want to take out of this guidebook. They turn the Old Testament into kind of a guidebook of God's promises and, and they pick which promises they want for them that sound good to them and then they go hang them on the wall. They make them a screensaver on their computer or, or write them somewhere down. And, and here's the thing, Th those promises, they aren't specific promises for you and me. And I'm gonna mess up a lot of you this morning because some of you like Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. Plans not to harm you, but to prosper you. And, and I, I watch so many people claim that as a verse, a promise from God to them. And then they get mad when God doesn't come through the way he wanted to. But you gotta understand that promise was in fact a promise from God to the Jews who were in captivity in Babylon that God would be with them and God would deliver them. And you know what? God did 70 years later. Claim that promise, you get the return 70 years later. Just a thought. No, but here, here's my point. That, that many of the promises that we find in the Old Testament, they were specific for Jewish people as they fulfilled a specific purpose. 
For us, it's just this extraordinary history of God preparing the world for his entrance as our savior. It's a story of God moving and proving his love for all the people, including you and me. And here's the thing. So you say, what do we do with those promises? Well, here's, here's what those promises do. They show us the character of God. Well, if God did that for them, well, that's I'm sure his heart for me. And so what it does, it inspires our hearts to have enduring hope because we see how that God came through in the past and how God showed up in the past. And it says, okay, this is the character of God. And so I can count on that in my present and in my future. Does that make sense? So the apostle Paul, he kind of says it this way. He says, for everything that was written in the past, it was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provided, we might have hope. Amen. That's the point. Apostle Paul said it himself. He said, I, I know these Old Testament, I know our, the Jewish scripture better than anybody. He, he even says in Galatians as well. He says, man, I, I studied them. I, I was at the top of my class. I can tell you what the Old Testament scripture is all about, the sacred scripture of the Jews. And he says, let me just tell you, for those of you coming along now, he goes, they were written so that we might have hope. So I don't want you to miss this. God wrote all of this, had all of this recorded, had all of this saved so you could have hope. No matter what you're going through, that you could have hope. Now, I don't want you to miss the last part of this because it sets us up for next week. By, by the second century, the Gentiles, they, they didn't have a Bible of their own. They didn't have the Bibles we have it. Even you know, by the second century, they did have the four accounts of Jesus' life, what we now call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they had the Jewish scriptures that they had adopted as Christian scriptures, and they started using all of that in their worship. But eventually, they gave these Jewish scriptures a new name. They first called them the Old Covenant. And then later, they used a Latin term, and they started calling them the Old Testament. And you know why they did? Because these Gentile Christians knew that God, through Jesus, had fulfilled the original covenant, the old covenant to the Jews and established a brand new covenant to the Jewish nation and to all the other nations of the world. A covenant that was created and was authenticated by Jesus' own death and by his resurrection. And here's the thing, still at this point that you gotta understand, there is no Bible as we have it today. There's just a group of Gentile people interested in a Jewish man named Jesus who fulfilled the laws and the promises of, of some of the ancient Jewish documents that we now call the Old Testament. So here's the question. How, how do we get from there to the Bible we have today? I can't wait to tell you next week. And I promise you, at the end of this story, because some of you are like, oh, I wish you'd hurry up, wish you'd hurry up. At the end of the story, it has the potential to change the way you approach and you read and you understand this thing that we call the Bible. So I want you to come back next week and we're gonna pick up the story next week for the conclusion. We're gonna bring it all together, right? Of the Bible for grownups. And by the way, if you haven't signed up yet, make sure you sign up. Because on April the 2nd, we're gonna do a three-hour workshop called, it's part of our Theopraxis series called Context to give you even greater context of the Old Testament and the New Testament. So basically a more in-depth survey of the Bible. There was a card on your seat to let us know that you're going to be able to attend. You can go scan the QR code and that way we can be prepared for you and be ready for you. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for just this incredibly 
fun and intense journey of beginning to understand um, the context, the backstory of this precious um, book that we have called the Bible. God, I, I thank you that as we open it, we understand the context, we understand the story. It just touches our heart in ways that we never could imagine because we begin to see how much you loved us. You loved us so much that you had these things recorded. So as the Apostle Paul said, that we would learn patient endurance to see who you are and how much you care about us. And in doing so, we might have hope. I thank you for that. The hope that, God, you did this for these people in the past and I'm just trusting and believing that you're the same God yesterday, today, and forever. So God, I just pray that as we go through this week, um, as we open up your word, that you'll just speak out to us and show us how much you care. And God, through that, may our hope be increased. And may we be able to give that hope to a world that so desperately needs us around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey again, thanks everyone. Have a great day. We'll see you next week to conclude the Bible for grownups.